Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 14th, 2018, and this is episode 2271 of the Survival Podcast. Today's show is titled, The Most Valuable Skill Most People Are Never Taught. If you haven't seen the show notes yet today, you might be wondering what that skill is. You might be thinking, I know, Jack likes to cook, and kids today can't cook worth a shit. They think microwave and water is cooking. It's cooking. No, it's not cooking. You might think, well, uh, you know, something in preparedness or, or something like that. No, the skill is selling. And it's, it, it's, it's an incredibly valuable skill set. It's something that's actually priceless knowing how to do it right. And it's something that's actually become a negative thing in the minds of most people. But simply put, sales is life, and life is sales. That's my saying. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson stated, Everyone lives by selling something, and it's kind of the same thing, but different, man, in the words of Tommy Chong. But both of them are true. But the huge problem we have in life is people compartmentalize everything. It's the, this is my world and my things, and everything else is out there and somewhere apart from me, i.e. sales is something salespeople do, and I am not a salesperson, so I don't need to worry about it. My one-word response to this is bullshit. Have you ever asked anyone on a date? Did you ever interview to get into a school? Did you ever try out for a team? Have you ever interviewed for a job? Did you as a child ever convince your parents to buy you a freaking toy? Well, sales, 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 and sales are what those items are. The single most valuable thing I can teach you about sales is what I call an absolute definition of it. An absolute de definition means a simple statement that requires no further explanation and works all the time, every time, for a given thing. My absolute definition of sales is a transfer of belief. That's it. That's the whole thing. And it works every time, all the time, in every situation. Let's put it to the test with some of the questions I gave you there. A date, getting to school, etc. Getting a date. You transfer a belief that I'm worth spending time with. You're trying to get a date, you're not trying to convince somebody that you're worth spending the rest of their life with. Hopefully you're not doing that because there's something wrong with you if you are. You need to get to know somebody. But your, your simple proposal in, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee, grab a beer, go to a bar, go to a movie, go to dinner, whatever it is, is, hey, I'm worth spending a couple hours with to get to know. You transfer that belief, unless that person's married and you didn't know it or something, you get a date. Getting into a school, you simply transfer the belief that I'm going to be a good student and you know a little further, I have the means to afford to go here. You get in. It really is that simple. Are you going to be a good enough student to be good enough to be high enough, you know, if it's a selective school, that you fit in that group that they consider are going to be valuable enough to bring to their school? You transfer that belief, you get in. You have to believe it. To get on a team, you transfer the belief that I'm going to be a good player. To get a job, you transfer the belief that I'm going to be a good employee. Getting a child's toy, you transfer the belief that the toy's worth buying for some reason. 
You know, you've been good. It'll shut you up. It'll give you something to do. You've earned it. Uh, you have a birthday coming up, and they're going to get you something anyway, so they might as well get you what you want. doesn't matter what it is. It's still the same thing. You have a belief that you transfer to that other party, and that gets you what you want. Do you really see how simple that is? The truth is all of us are actually naturally born salespeople. We have something I started calling the inner salesman a long time ago. And sadly for most of us, it's literally beaten out of us by the time we most need it. Today I'm going to put you back in touch with your old friend and tell you how he or she can help you build a better life. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, is Ready-Made Resources. This is a company that does what it says and says what it does, right there in its name. Ready-Made Resources. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. And they have it all. Tactical to practical, guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all where? At ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. There's another company that... Does what it says and says what it does, right? They have kits to build knives with. They have a lot of other cool stuff, too, but that's kind of their mainstay. You know, building knives can seem kind of scary, but if you can buy everything you need in a single package, maybe pick out some handle material and stuff like that, maybe get a book or a DVD if you need a little help knowing how to, to go forward with it, and just simply put that knife together, do the final fit, finish, and sharpening, and then maybe take it to another level if you want to. It gets a lot easier. Kind of think back to when you were a kid. Right, like your first models. If you ever did model airplanes or cars, you know the snap together ones, the little stickers you put on them, and you made a car, a Mustang or something like that. And then maybe you went, you did something a little more complex where it was a glue together, and you did some painting. And then maybe one day you did something like a big battleship or a submarine or something. And you kind of progress through it. Knife kits give you gives you that ability to self learn and self progress in the world of making awesome knives. Check them out at knifekits.com. Remember, both of our sponsors today and many other vendors do give you a discount if you are a member of the MSB. And on that note, if you're not yet a member of the MSB, I highly recommend you consider joining today. Right now, we have a discount sale going. That discount gives you the MSB for $35 instead of $50 a year. The rate locks in for life as long as you maintain your membership. The discount code is 10 years to celebrate 10 years of the Survival Podcast. You can do one zero years or you can do T-E-N years. Both of them will work. I did that so nobody would you know, get confused. And you'll get all the great benefits of the MSB that I've been talking about for over 10 years. Actually, nine years since we launched it nine years ago instead of 10 years ago. And uh, you'll, you'll get all of that great stuff for, you know, it comes down to about 12 cents an episode. Go to the, MS, uh, to go to the Survival Podcast. Go to the Survival Podcast and click on Members to learn more. And I usually talk about the service discount. This is just a little better than the service discount. So even if you're prior military or something like that, take this sale while it's available. It expires tomorrow night at midnight central time. And you know me. I don't care if your dog eats your discount code. Once the MSB sale is over, it's over. No exceptions or it doesn't mean anything. There's a sales lesson in that, by the way. So before we do a deep dive into this topic of sales, let's go ahead and get some perspective on history with this day in history for August the 14th, 1935. There's a lot of stuff that happened this day. Uh, the 2003 blackout that I actually was stuck in New York City for happened this day. I thought about that since I lived through it, was part of it, but 
Um, the biggest thing that I can see that happened on this day happened in 1935. It was life-altering for the United States and certainly for the world. It was on this day in 1935 that Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act. Uh, this was signed into law as the Social Security Act. Press photographers snapped pictures as FDR flanked by ranking members of Congress. Signed into law the historic act, which guaranteed an income for the unemployed and retirees. FDR comment, commended Congress for what he considered a patriotic act. Roosevelt had taken the helm of the country in 1932 in the midst of the Great Depression, the nation's worst economic crisis. The SSA was in keeping with other New Deal programs, including the establishment of the Works Progress Administration and Civilian uh, Conservation Corps, which attempted to hoist America out of the Great Depression by putting Americans back to work. I'm on my own now. The big difference between the Social Security Act and things like the Civ Civilian Conservation Corps is the Civilian Conservation Corps could go away when the crisis was over. And the Social Security Act would never go away until it eventually maybe collapses under its own weight. I think this is one of the darkest days in American history. I know for all of the hoopla and worship about Social Security and our elderly and blah, 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 we have to save Social Security, blah, 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 blah. We have been brainwashed into believing this is a necessary thing. So how did our country get all the way to 1935 without it? How did our nation, which was a lot less prosperous for the average person, and had one member of families working make it all the way to 1935 without this thing if it's so necessary. And how is it that we now have a Social Security program where if people were to take the same amount of money that goes into their Social Security accounts and put it into the, some of the most conservative private investments, they would all retire as multimillionaires, and yet they retire on some crappy stipend of one to $2,000 a month, and it's always at the edge of going bankrupt. How is that? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'll tell you. Because it's not an investment. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. Let me describe to you exactly, precisely how Social Security works. People put money into Social Security because they have to. They're forced to do it at the point of a gun. This is actually the only thing that makes it different than a Ponzi scheme. At least people voluntarily go into Ponzi schemes. So people put their money into a Ponzi scheme. The United States government uses the money. They use the money to pay the people currently that are collecting Social Security. Got it? If we don't have enough new money to pay out the old money, we go broke. There is no underlying value, there's no underlying asset, and there's no underlying investment. If the government wanted to do this the way that they portray that they do this, then all the Social Security money would go into U.S. government-backed bonds. And you would have a bond portfolio. Every time you bought in, or it would go into a, a, an account that would accrue, and then once a quarter, all of your contributions would buy a single bond. And you would have your own little portfolio of U.S. government bonds that would auto-renew, etc., all the way up until you began withdrawing from them. And then it would be a legitimate invest. It would be a, a coerced investment program, but it would be an investment program because the government would be paying you a rate of return on it that is specific to a loan that you've issued to them. This is not what happens. They just take money out of there whenever they want to. They don't worry about how much they're paying on other debts. And they hope there's enough new money to pay it back. That's it. That's it. It's a Ponzi scheme. That's what Social Security is. And it worked 
while the population was rapidly expanding because you had enough guaranteed new Madoff money coming into the system, and it's been on the edge of collapse for 30 years because we ain't making enough new babies. It's that simple. We're getting to a point where there's not enough new money to fund the old money. The people that made out the best in this program were the very first people to retire under it. The people that will make out the worst will be the ones left holding the bag when the faucet runs out. That's the truth. And that's why I say Franklin Delano Roosevelt was not a great president. In fact, I believe he was a traitor to this country and to the United States Constitution. And at that point, he seemed to start a trend that just got worse most of the time going forward. Sorry I can't look at it any other way. I'm, well, I'm one of those pain-in-the-ass people that we call a realist. With that, let's, uh, let's dig into this subject of sales. I, I want to start out with, and I kind of hinted around with it uh, in the introduction, why we are all actually born knowing how to sell. Now, we don't really know how to sell effectively when we're born because we're infants. We don't have language skills. We don't have a fully developed brain. A lot of people say our, our frontal cortex isn't even fully developed until about the age of 24. Uh, but we don't even have rudimentary language skills yet. We basically crap and pee and cry. And even then we have the first vestiges of being able to sell. When we have a problem and we need something, we cry, we make noise, we somehow agitate a situation so that someone responds to us. This isn't really selling, but it's it's the... It's like, it's like the precursor to the concept of sales. But it doesn't take us long. By the time we have the most basic skills in language, we know, I want that thing. This, this larger human we call mommy or daddy has it and has access to it, and I'm now going to leverage them in some way to get it. There's no, there's no more high-pressure, terroristic salesperson than a two-year-old. I deal with one every day now in the form of my granddaughter. And as they get a little bit older, they get better at it. And kids get really good at selling. You think about the average seven, eight, nine-year-old kid that wants something. They'll come up with a million reasons why your life would be better if you got it for them. So tell me they're not selling. Think about the average kid that wants to be part of a club that other kids are in, and they decide whether he gets in or not. If he actually really wants to be there, as long as the other kids aren't picking on him, he's like, he'll make a very convincing case. That you need to let them in. And we'll look at these kids that do this and we'll say, well, they're like, they're, I mean, naturally outgoing and naturally charismatic and everything. Many of them aren't by the time that they're 20. Because I'm going to talk in a minute about how it gets beaten out of us. But if you think about it, a kid wants money, knows that, that grandma has money and needs a thing, they'll go ask grandma for five bucks like that, won't they? Or if they need money and they know grandma won't just give the money, but grandma will give the money if they do a job, they'll come over to grandma's house and say, is there any chores I can do? They're selling themselves. They're selling their skill set. I can't do a lot, but grandma tell me what to do and I'll try because I know grandma will give me five bucks. And we do this all the way through school. We get old enough to notice that cute girl or cute guy over there and we at least say hello. You know, that, that's basically prospecting. That's what that is. In the world of sales, prospecting is I, I, I check out a, a from business to business. I check out a company. Like, what do they do? What do they do? And then if I think they do things that we can help them with, then I'll prospect a person within that company. I'll give them a call. I'll do some probing questions or something like that. And that's what 
you're not quite ready to ask a person out yet, but you want to see would they be open to it. So you say hello. If they look at you like you have a lizard crawling out of your, your ear and they hate you and the lizard both so that you feel like your soul is crushed, you're probably not going to ask them out because you prospected and you found they were a poor prospect. But if you say hello and they smile back, you might take the conversation further right away or they might just say hello and you might just let it go and try again tomorrow and do a little more prospecting. But in the end, you're going through a sales process. You're going to get to a point where you say, hey, would you like to go get a cup of coffee? Would you like to go grab a beer? Would you like to have dinner? You know, you want to meet for lunch. If it's something like a, at school, well, you know, there's an opportunity to eat together. And you want to come sit at a table. All of these are prospecting things. And even when it's not romantic, when it's just a friendship, hey, you want to come over and hang out. What you're saying is, hey, let's see if this is worth going forward with as a friendship. Let's get to know each other. This is sales. Everything we do in life is generally some form of selling. And then eventually you have to go get a job or get into a prestigious university if that's the path you're taking. You have to convince somebody on the other side of that table that you're worth taking a shot on. This is selling. Now, the problem is this basic innate thing that we all know how to do, if we compared it to walking, yes, it takes some time to learn, but it's unlikely that even left to themselves, most, most toddlers wouldn't be walking by, let's say, age one and a half, two, even if no one ever got them a walker, held them up by their fingers, encouraged them. If you just left them alone, you know, you did all the things you need to do, but you, know, you changed their diapers and fed them and hugged them and loved them, but you never really did anything to make them walk, they're going to start first you know, rolling over, then they're going to start pushing their head up, then they're going to start trying to stand up. They're going to pull themselves up on shit. They're going to pull themselves along. They're going to observe you. And pretty soon they're going to start walking. But if we lived in a society where walking was considered bad, everybody was in some kind of a hover chair. And you, you, you told that kid every time it exhibited any behavior that involved walking, especially once they developed language skills, you're doing something wrong. How likely is it that they would be very poor at walking even when they had to, and they would feel bad about it when they did. This is selling. Because, and it's a variety of reasons. One thing we do is kid goes over, asks grandma for something, grandma gives it to him, what do we say? John, Johnny, that was wrong. You shouldn't ask people for money. Johnny, that was wrong. You shouldn't ask people for stuff. Now, we're doing it, we mean well, because we don't want grandma to feel guilty and put herself out. But what we should be doing is teaching Johnny etiquette when you ask for something, make sure the person you're asking for can afford to give it to you. Right? And many times grandma can't afford it. Grandma's, grandma's a grown woman. She'll say no when she needs to. How do you expect Johnny then to go tell the coach to give him a shot? On the team. See, we send these kids mixed messages. They go out and do things, and then we say, hey, you shouldn't do that. Don't ask, don't ask your aunt for money. Then a kid gets a job in sales, and you wonder why he can't sell. He can't ask people for money. He's been trained his whole life not to ask people for money. We also have this belief system that salespeople are somehow sleazy, evil, snake oil merchants. And some of them kind of help that along. 
the really hungry salespeople that don't have the patience to, to, to really look after the customers, the classic sleazy, you know, greasy-haired used car guy, or even a new car guy. That, like as soon as he starts talking, like, oh God, go away. That doesn't help. But the majority of people that are in sales are actually really smart people. That's why they're in sales. Sales is the is the the one place that you write your own paycheck. Sales is the one place where you you know you're being judged on your performance at all times. Maybe athletics is about the only other place you're not as joint judged continuously on your performance. But the rewards are a lot of freedom, a lot of latitude. Make your numbers. They'll leave you alone, and you can make a lot of money. You can make a lot of money because you have an engineering degree and you go into sales. You can make a lot of money because you're an eighth grade educated hick, but you're good at sales and you never quit. And you learn one thing good enough to go sell that. So it's generally smart people that are involved in sales, not shysters. But we have this belief that people in sales aren't somehow out to get you. And this belief transfers into our children. The next thing is we have a very poor image of money in America. Not everybody, but in general, the average person sees rich people as greedy. As having, because they have, we don't. We have class warfare taught from the top down, and most of us vicariously teach it to our children. If I say rich and the first thing you think of is greed, you're going to have a hard time becoming rich. If I say rich and you think lucky, you're going to have a hard time becoming rich. If I say rich and you think hardworking, you're going to probably have a pretty reasonable chance to become a wealthy person. And when you see somebody become successful financially and have a lot of stuff, if you think, good for them, then you're probably going to have a good chance to become wealthy. But if you see people become wealthy and you think, must be nice, you're going to have a difficult time. Now, the concept is they're linked. Sales equals money and money transferring from one party to another. Therefore, the salesman gets the money, even though they often do not. And salesmen that are successful often are wealthy. So now the whole thing's kind of icky in the mind of people. That's why when I say, "Do you want to be in sales?" most people are like, "Not, not really. I don't, I don't want to do that." It's not just the fact that it is difficult at times. It's there's a negative connotation with it. So with all of that, we take this basic selling concept and we beat, we literally beat it out of our children, and then tell them, "Go get into, go get into college, go get a job, go find a wife." Don't ask for money. Go find a job. Do you see the conflict? So this is where we're at, and this is the number one reason that I say people hate money. It's not your fault that you hate money. You've been trained to hate money. You've been taught that seeking to remove money from one party and bring it to yourself is somehow negative. Now I want you to think about this. Whatever amount of money you earn. You spend a significant amount of it, and you spend it because you either want stuff or need stuff. The person providing it to you, the company providing it to you, is not evil for fulfilling your, either your needs or your desires. Yet the people most successful at it, we tend as a society to view negatively, and therefore we must see the act of doing the selling, the convincing to use my brand or choose my thing or want my thing as negative. And since we see that as negative, then we go say we want to be in business, 
But we view the entire process of actually getting someone to spend money with us, even on the subconscious level, as bad. So we're going to act like we hate money because... In a way, we hate money because money represents something negative to us. And this is what attracts people mostly to selling online. You think it's the ease of doing it, the passive income type thing, having a website, act like a slave, etc. It's really not. What it really does is it gives them a certain comfort because the person sending them money is a stranger. They don't have to worry. Like, it's just, oh, well, they want it and they bought it, and that doesn't really have anything to do with me. I didn't make them buy it. Well, you built the site, you built the formula, you built the lead collection system, the follow-up system. You're just using technology to do your job, hopefully effectively. Most people even do that ineffectively because they won't do the things that are best suited for the sales process because people don't, this is the other side, people don't like to be manipulated. Therefore, they don't want to feel like they're manipulating others. But done properly, sales is not the manipulation of others. On some levels, it is, though. And some levels, it needs to be. When, when I am trying to get you to choose my company over another company, you're going to spend that money anyway. So on some levels, I am going to manipulate you. But manipulation itself is not always a negative thing. I want you to look at it this way. Let's say that you had a kid... That will go to an extreme to make it clear that you can manipulate and not have it be negative. You have a child, let's say an adult child, 19, so you can't just reach in and make them do what you want them to do. And they have a drug problem. And, and they have a drug problem. It's not just they occasionally smoke a little dope. They're on something like a hard substance, like heroin or meth. And they can't stop. They have reached the disease condition known as addiction. Would you manipulate them to get them into a rehab? Of course you would, because you know they're better off in a rehab. So if I had another company that you were considering, and I really know, it's not just about my commission, I really know my company's going to do a better job for you. Might I manipulate you in some way into choosing mine? And might I actually manipulate you with facts? See, again, we, we take words and we change the meaning so they're negative. I say rhetoric, and people think, oh, that's bad. No. Empty rhetoric is bad. Rhetoric is the ability to communicate your ideas. It's, it's one of the, the, the three cores of the trivium of classic education. But the word has become negative in the minds of people because of the way it's used. Manipulate is the same way. I have had really great deep tissue massages by people that manipulate my back. I've had great chiropractors manipulate my spine. As a salesperson, I've manipulated the decisions of others in a good way. Hey, you're going to buy all this shit from Cisco because you think it's your only option, to go very specific to my old niche, for carrier class Ethernet equipment that's NEB certified. I also have that. I have all these different uh, switches and routers and hubs and, and whatnot that are all the same thing as far as those requirements. And they cost less money. Wouldn't you like to at least look at them? I'm manipulating that engineer. I know exactly what he wants to hear, so I'm telling him what he wants to hear. It also happens to be true. But until we get through our heads that we can be a positive force of manipulation, that we can convince people to do business with us in a positive way that's beneficial to them as well, we're not going to be good salespeople. This is why people will intrinsically say, hey, 
I want to go on a date, or hey, let me into your school, or hey, give me a job. And they'll manipulate to get that done because they actually what? Believe. I actually believe I would be good at this job if you gave me a shot at it. I actually believe we'd have a good time on a date and it might go somewhere if you went out with me. Right? So they'll do it because they believe it. And that's why I say the absolute definition is transfer of belief. And if you believe it, then you'll stop hating money. Next up, I think everyone needs to... You know what they call the old ABCs, always be selling, C-E-L-L instead of S-E-L-L, because ABS doesn't work real well. And this makes me think, so back when I, I, the way I ended up working for Fluke Networks is I originally went to work for a company called Microtest, who Fluke bought like a month after I went to work there. It was a disaster. Um, But before that happened, there was a big meeting at uh, Microtest Corporate Headquarters. And with this really great guy, I wish he would have got purged, and I wish I would have had more time to work with him as a mentor because he was a great guy. Um, He he stood up in front of the company at this huge national-level meeting, and he said, how many of you people are in sales? And I was new, but I was in sales, so I put my hand up. Three other guys put their hands up. And then there were four inside salespeople. Each of us as regional managers had an inside salesperson. And all four of those salespeople put their hands up. So eight people. Now on the other side, of like I had 35 people working for me in the field that weren't there because they were manufacturers reps. So they were out there as a sales force too. There's over 500 people in this company. There's eight people with their hands in the air. He said, okay, I want you to look around. You see those people with their hands in the air? They're our infantry. And in the words of Winston Churchill, as far as it comes down to you feeding your family, never have so many owed so much to so few. I thought, wow, I'm actually going to be appreciated here. This is going to be a cool company. Gank, you know, later, a month later, it didn't pan out that way. But um, he said, put your hands down. He said, now the rest of you, shame on you. I was like, whoa, what the hell, man? I know it's kind of rough. And he said, no, every single one of you should be selling this company all the time. Your job depends on it. Every time you talk to somebody, you should be like, you know, what do you do, and telling them what you where you work, and you not been, you know, that's not even manipulating. That's just like networking. And if you find out that, for instance, somebody works in a computer room, you might let our salespeople know about it because it's good for you if they know about it. Because if they bring in business, you get to keep your job. And I guess at work, like that level of always be selling makes sense. But selling is a process that involves basically a timeline, a sales cycle. And it always begins with the concept of prospecting. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. But that simply means like testing the waters. What's available here? What's available there? Might these people need what I have? That's how you should live your life. And and most people think, well, that's aggressive. That's assertive. That's trying to take. That's actually a servant-led viewpoint. Because if I'm looking around and I see an organization, I'm thinking, how can I help them? It may not be by actually selling them a thing they give me money for. It may be by connecting them to somebody else that they need to meet. It may be by volunteering my time. It may be by writing a check because I I have a certain amount I'm going to do in charity anyway every month. And I see what these people are doing and that's who I'm going to support this month. And all of those are selling because they're starting with the process of prospecting. You should always be looking to people that you meet. What might there be between the two of us? Including absolutely nothing. I don't want anything to do with this. That's actually part of prospecting as well that I'll get to later. 
You need to understand things like when you, when you say you're, you have a negative view of selling, if you debate people, bullshit, you're selling. Every debate you ever into is selling an idea. So when somebody says, well, I think the government should take over health care, and you say, please understand this basic concept. You want the government to take over health care, one of the largest and most important industries there is that affects every single person in America. And the government screwed up a gas can. They couldn't even get a gas can right. You want them to run health care? And, and, and you know that either goes in or it doesn't into their brain and changes the thought or it doesn't. You just try to sell them an idea. The government is incompetent, You're, which I think is a very clear ideal that most people, if they really examined it, would agree. In most instances, whatever government touch, it makes it worse. It's not that we can't, you know, we can't do it without them. I, I don't know. There's a lot of things that got done without government before government started doing it. Most federal agencies didn't exist 50 years ago. Somehow we got along until now without them. I'm selling you an idea. I'm manipulating your thinking. It's not negative because I really believe it. And I want you to at least consider it. If you don't want to buy it, that's okay, but know what you're saying no to. That's the philosophy of sales. Let me convey to you what I know about this thing that you do not know. And let me show you how it would help you to take this thing and use it in some way. An idea, a thought, a person, a, you know, a product, a service, doesn't matter. And then you look at it and say, based on that information, I agree with you and I want to be a buyer, user, you know, member, acceptor. Or, no, I don't. That's not for me. That's how simple sales really is. And when you start to understand that you're always doing that anyway in your life, then you start to do it proactively because it's like anything that you're always doing. You're always managing your money. You're always managing your money. You're just doing a shitty job of it for most Americans. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You have a management program. It involves you make money and spend it all. You make money, spend it all, and whatever you can't afford, you go into debt. That's a money management strategy. It's just a shitty one. And most people aren't even aware that they're managing their money. If they were aware that they were managing their money, they might say, I might want to do a bit better of a job than that. So if you're always selling something anyway, because you can sell yourself out of a date, you can sell yourself out of a job, you can sell yourself out of an opportunity, you can sell yourself out of a friendship. If you're not mindful of the fact that every time you make a contact with somebody, it's some form of prospecting, and that you should be, let's say, on your best behavior, then you are going to do this selling anyway poorly. And you're literally going to, like law of attraction, the real laws of attraction I always talk about, when you sell poorly, you repel. When you sell effectively, you attract. And this is the good news. Since you're an independent contractor in all this, of what you attract, you choose what to engage with. Because the most powerful world is, word a salesperson can use is what? No. I don't take every client. I don't take every customer. I only take X amount per year. Before I can say that we'll do business together, I have to see if you qualify as a client. Before I take the job, I need to know if the company's right for me and if you can afford me. I say, man, that sounds arrogant. No, it sounds like you believe in your shit. I remember when I first walked away from 
outside plant construction. I did directional boring and stuff like that. And I, I just happened to meet this guy on an airplane. He said, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to interview with this company. Uh, it does. Uh, I'm going to go back indoors with inside plant cabling again. Uh, I got a pretty good opportunity here, and I want to talk to these guys. He said, well, what were you doing up till now? I said, well, I, I was doing outside plant work. He said, well, what? And I said, directional boring, and his eyes lit up. He had a company that neat, you know, was, did, did directional boring amongst a bunch of other things. He starts talking to me about what I did. He started throwing money at me. And the more I said, like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's dangerous work. It's uh, it's it's a radical sales cycle. This is a much more pleasing environment, much more technically motivated to move back and inside plan again. And he was like, "Well, you know how how much do you need? I, like, I could do a base salary of like eighty, and then I could give you an incentive package." He just met me. He just met me. The fact that I said no made him believe I was capable of doing everything I said I could do. So understand that. That the fact that you choose after you attract what to engage with makes you more attractive. Doesn't matter if it's relationships, doesn't matter if it's business, doesn't matter if it's customers, doesn't matter if it's employment. These are the real universal laws. By the way, if you're liking this show, you're going to love Thursdays. A special show on Thursday featuring John Pugliano. Yep, that's going to be all about building wealth. Today we're going to stick to sales, though. Great way to build wealth. So I want to give you the most basic sales formula that there is. There's a lot of different sales methods, formulas, etc. And if you look for sales formulas online, you may find a lot of things like uh, Excel formulas to calculate and you know uh, to forecast or to calculate profits or something like that. When I say a sales formula here, I'm talking about a method of selling. So it's called the cash formula. And, and I've I found that stupid little things that use an acronyms actually do stick in people's heads, especially when they work. The cash formula is the most used and most effective, specifically product sales formula that there is. However, it's also effective selling other things like ideas. It's effective in selling services, but it really shines in selling products. And you have seen this formula a million times and failed to recognize it if no one ever taught it to you. Because every infomercial on TV is the cash formula in action. And the most effective commercials are micro, you know, uh, of these of these things. So... When you see something like, I don't know, some guy selling an exercise machine in a 30-minute infomercial, you can understand how that gets people to call in or selling some kind of cooking device or something, even if it's junk. But the, the guy that's doing it now in 60 seconds or less is Mike Lindell with the MyPillow product. If you listen to Fox News at all, you've seen this guy. He's on all the time. And he's using a cash formula. Right? And when I explain the formula, if you've seen the commercial, it'll make perfect sense. So you got C-A-S-H, right? Create, agitate, solve, and help. So we create a problem. Hey, you're not sleeping well. You're not sleeping well because your pillow's not working right. Now let me tell you why this is an effective way to create a problem. Because probably half of all Americans aren't sleeping well. Whether it's their pillow or not, I at least have your attention. Because it could be your pillow, it could be a lot of things plus your pillow. We don't know. But I have created a problem for you. Now, you already had the problem. So in this instance, create is more about bringing the problem into the discussion. So, your pillow sucks. A stands for agitate. 
So, if you think about his commercials, I tried a foam pillow and it didn't fit my neck, and I bet it doesn't fit your neck either. The down pillow goes down. You, you lay on it. It feels good at first, and then it collapses in your neck. right? And he talks about the things that actually happen to people when they sleep. He said, yeah, that's, that's you know, it, it, these are the things that I've tried to sleep better. He solves the problem. So I made my own pillow. I worked on it for years. You know, I make it in Michigan, and I make it in America, and some other things you want to hear. But in the end, I created this pillow. It fits for everybody. It works for everybody. Try my pillow. It'll become your pillow. Right? So now he's solving your problem. You'll sleep better with this pillow. Even if your mattress sucks. If your pillow also sucks, it won't solve the mattress problem, but it will solve the pillow problem, and that's cheaper than a new mattress. So I've solved the problem. Then I'm going to help you buy it. Here's a number. Here's a website. Here's a special deal. Buy one, get one for half price. Buy one, get one free, whatever he's doing this month. Right? And if you don't agree that it's the best pillow you ever had, send it back and I'll give you your money back. You have nothing to lose. Create, agitate, solve, help. Okay? Now, this is actually a fairly sophisticated sales formula. But if you think about it, every product advertisement that actually tries to get you to buy at the end, not a branding ad, not drink Coke and get a smile or whatever, call now. If it ends with that... It always follows this process. And it sells the, the worst product in the world, some plastic piece of shit that won't do half of what they say it does, sprays your RV off and makes it clean or something like that, and a product is probably a decent product for what it is like Mike's Pillow. I have to think that as long as he's been running those ads and still running them, it's probably half decent. He hasn't gotten me yet. He probably never will. But I am using him as an example. of Somebody will probably buy one of these damn pillows because they heard me talk about it. So his marketing and sales is effective. Okay, so you're sure, you're positive that this is a, a sophisticated sales formula used by professionals. You're correct. It is also, remember I said we beat it out of people? It's in children. It's in children. i got a great story for you. My, my niece Meyer, when she was a little girl, she was going to her grandma's house. And grandma and her like to go to the dollar store and buy stuff. Well, what she did, though, before she went to Grandma, she emptied out her little play purse. So that when she got to Grandma's and they were going to play, there was nothing in her purse. She created a problem. She created a problem. She did exactly, I, I, we can't play. I don't have any stuff in my purse. And then she agitated the problem. Right? She kind of pointed it out to her grandma. She didn't just create the problem. Then she agitated. Look, I don't have anything. We can't play with this. Then she solved the problem. We could go to the dollar store and get stuff from my purse. Five bucks goes a long way for a little kid's purse at a dollar store, right? And, you know, and then she kind of pushed her a little bit and a little way, and that's the helping portion. And if we do that, we'll have fun, and we can go out, and blah, blah, blah. All the wonderful things that will come from using this solution. That's the help. So this kid who was like five years old at the time did a perfect 100% astute execution of the cash formula and what do you think she was told, hey, that's not nice. Now my, my in-laws being a little more sophisticated and having been around me actually didn't do that. But what most people would have done is say that you shouldn't have done that to grandma. That's wrong. That's wrong. Now you might kind of Teach a little more ethics there so it's not this wholesale manipulation of grandma. But I look at it this way. If a woman old enough to be grandma 
chooses to take a kid to the dollar store and spend five bucks, she probably would have done it anyway. That's ingenuity. And that is the natural way that human beings interact. We are naturally problem solvers, and if the solution happens to benefit us, so great. Because that same solution-finding thing will often lead not to, hey, what can I get, but how can I help? It's not a bad thing. Now, here's the important thing in sales, when you actually are selling. Don't be afraid to let them do all the work for you if they will. And certainly don't let them be afraid to do the first two. I think of a job interview here with the cash flow. Create a problem. You don't have to create a problem. You don't even have to bring it into the discussion. When a company says, we're hiring people that have these skills, they're saying, we have a problem. We need these people. And if they were here, if they were in front of me right now, I'd already have hired them and I wouldn't be spending money and time advertising. The problem's being agitated daily because every day I don't have the person that I need to do the job. The job's not getting done or I'm doing it myself. So you are the solution. You start at the solve. You start at the solve. And you help them by presenting how you can come in and actually solve those problems for them. So they've done 50% of the work for you. Sometimes you have a sale, when you're actually in sales, we call it a laid-down sale. The only way you're not going to sell it is if you somehow mess it up. They're trying to buy, and you just need to get out of the way and let them do it. They've already gone through the process. And if you think about it, this is the reason it works as a sales process is a buying process. Think about it. I need a product. Because I, what? It's entertaining and I'm bored. I want to learn something new and it's going to teach me something. I am cooking and I want a seasoning that tastes more like this. I want a toothbrush that makes my teeth cleaner. You know, I want a way to scratch my back. It doesn't matter. You always have a problem when you start down the path of buying something. So you you self-agitate the problem to convince yourself that, hey, it's worth spending this money. And when you find a solution, when you go, when you start researching Amazon reviews or something, you're solving your own problem. And then when you figure out how you can pay for it, you're helping. You're helping them sell to you. Well, how can I move things around a little bit? And this is the lesson. Now we're going to go back to the sales side. A lot of times, what helping is is pointing out to the person how they can afford it. And I've I've had it not be any type of real manipulation. Pointing out the abundantly obvious that the customer should have figured out for themselves. Well, I don't really, you know, business sales, selling them hardware. I, I don't really have um, enough money in the budget for for product. Really? Huh. That's that's interesting. What's your service budget like? Well, I got I got plenty of money in my service budget for the rest of the year. Okay. Um, what if we sell you a managed solution that includes the hardware? You don't actually need us to do a lot, but we can we can bill for service. Oh, okay. Can we can we do that? As long as you can cut the PO for it, I can do whatever you want. I'll call it I'll call it Yellow Dog Delivery Service if you want me to. As long as that's okay with your purchasing department and your internal you know procedures, I can call it whatever you want. Technically, it is a service because you have a three-year warranty where one of my techs will get on the phone and talk to you anytime you want. And if they can't fix it on the phone, they will fly out here. We actually did do that. I wasn't making that up. And so you do have a service component to this product. We just sell it as the product. But if you want us to, to put it on a line item for you as a service, we could do that. Or you're selling test equipment. 
I, I, and the guy says, you know, we're doing 10 floors of this building. I'd really like to have one of these testers for every floor of the building. Okay, I can make that happen. I don't have, I don't have the equipment budget. Well, you say you're doing the floor, so you, you have an install going in. Oh, yeah, we're going to have all of this cabled and all the stuff built out and everything. So how big is that budget? Well, that budget's huge. They know we have to put the money in. Okay, so why don't we do this? Why don't you include in your bid to your contractors that are going to do the installation that every floor needs to be tested with its own tester. It has to be a fluke tester. And at the end of the job, they leave the, the tester behind so you have it for maintenance. And now we're just going to move the expense into your infrastructure budget and out of your equipment budget. How about that? Can you do that? Yeah, sure. I don't care who buys it. I just care that somebody buys it. And I just care that you get it. That's helping to solve the problem. And a lot of times they'll do all the work for you and all you have to do is help them. Help them actually free up the capital. Help them actually figure out how to put you into a position. If you actually think you can make money for a company, and if you can convince them that you can, they'll create a job for you. Why wouldn't I hire you, even if I'm not hiring? If I believe that you can make my company more money this year, if I'm going to pay you $100,000 this year, but I think you're going to make my company four, and I don't hire you, I hate money and you don't want to work for me. Because I'm an idiot. It's that simple. Now, let's move on to some more basic sales techniques that I think most people, some of this is really common sense, and some of this is extremely counterintuitive. The first one is the most counterintuitive thing, and this is where salespeople get a bad name because they don't follow this rule. The best way to get a yes is make it easy to say no. What most salespeople try to do is put you in a position where it's difficult for you to say no. That's negative manipulation. Now, I don't mean the old, you know, like there are times when you look at an offer and go, i got to do that. You know, if it's that you know, patently obvious, you know, I would say that if you buy stuff in the preparedness industry, trees, bushes, seeds, gold, silver, nutritional supplements, the stuff that's in my MSB, and, and, and you can work out really easily that with a $35 membership, you could save 70 bucks next year. Well, that why, why haven't you done that already? But it's still easy to say no because I'm not in front of you and I'm not pushing a paper at you or something. But, I mean, literally, like, but then the other thing is just go check it out if you want to, right? So, you know, following the rule even then, make it easy to say no. And you can understand this with dogs. Yes, dogs. Let's say you're driving down the road, you see this stray dog, and he's kind of scared. And you go to pick him up. And he, 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 he tries to run away. And instead of taking time to convince him that you're safe, you reach out and grab him by the neck and you hold him where he, he tries to bite you, but he can't. You whip him in the back seat of your car. You take him home, you throw him in a little room. You go get a plate of dog food, you, and this poor dog is cowering, and you know he needs to eat. So you back him in a corner and you push the food in front of his face and you try to push his head down in front of that bowl. You're going to get your face ripped off. Even though that dog wants nothing more than to be fed. You've made it difficult to say no. He's going to want to say no. I demonstrated this many times in sales trainings. I would have people stand up, and I would say, like, I need a volunteer to stand up, a person to stand up. So I want you to put your hand up like, you know, like you're swearing on a Bible or something like that. You know, put your hand up like a stop sign. And I come up to him and I say, okay, here's, I'm going to push against your hand. I start pushing against your hand. They push back. I ask him, why do you push back? Well, I don't know. I thought I was supposed to. Did I tell you to push back? No. In fact, I told him, do only what I tell you to do. 
I'm going to push forward. So their hands should just go forward. They push back because it's a natural thing. If someone pushes against us, we push back. So as a salesperson, you always want to make it very easy for the person to say, I don't have time right now. Okay, I'll get with you later. I don't have the budget right now. And if you've done the examination and they really don't, you know, when's the budget going to be freed up and, and, and I'll get back to you? There's never like, well, just over the top pushing because that always results in resentment. We're not hiring right now. Okay. Do you think you might be hiring in the future? Unless you have that case you can make. Well, funny you should say that because I know that you sell Widget X. And I have 15 companies lined up right now that are looking to buy Widget X that don't know about your solution. And if you'd hired me as a salesperson, this is right here a forecast of the business I could bring you in the first quarter. But if you don't, see, you still go back to it. But if you don't want that business, if you're not ready for that much business yet or something like that, um, I can go somewhere else. It's very easy to say no to that, isn't it? It's like, well, damn shit, get out of here then. Go, bye. You almost have one foot out the door at all times. I'd really like to play for your team, but, but, but I don't know that you need you know someone with eight years of experience in, in football. Whatever it is. You know, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's the same thing. You make it easy to say no. You want to get somebody to go on a date with you, you make it easy to say no. People that feel like when you're first moving toward a romantic relationship, and it's difficult to say no, and all you did was talk to them once, uh-uh, that's creepy. That is really creepy. You, so you have to be in that position. Make it easy to say no. Counterintuitive, it's not what people think of in sales. Next, never leave money on the table. And I also said next to money, in parentheses, a.k.a. opportunity. Because it's not always money. It's not always money. You're interviewing for a job. There might actually be a better job that they're hiring for. But you couldn't get an interview for that job. But you got an interview for this job. Don't be afraid to go for that better thing. I also noticed you guys were hiring for this. Go for that opportunity. You go and get a job, and then they say, well, this is as much as we can afford to pay. And you believe them. They're, they're not lowballing you. Really? Okay, I understand that. Is there any way we could build an incentive compensation program in with this then? Even if I took a little bit less on the base side. Most jobs, if you creatively think about them, there would be a way to build an incentive base into them. Now, there's some formulaic jobs and stuff like that when you're just getting started. It is what it is. You take it or you leave it. And that's those are the ones that, you know, you do what you got to do to get by until you get enough skill set. But in almost any type of job, you can say, well, if I can we at least do, like, if I bring, you know, more people into the company or if I bring uh, business to the company or if I can come up with a process for this that I can demonstrate. I mean, I don't know because it all depends on the thing. But when you're selling stuff online, if you're selling more than one thing, why do you think Amazon has a thing? Customers that bought this also bought this. Downselling. I don't need this right now. I don't have enough money for this right now. Okay, well, what do you like most about it? Well, I like this. I have a product or a service that does at least that much of that for you. costs a lot less. Then we get a customer that starts out, and we can progress them upward. 
If you don't have a downsell product, you're kind of in a you know a one size fits all world, and that's a difficult place to be. You have to give. It's basically giving people things they can do that you would call multiple positive outcomes. And online, again, it's instead of just being money, it's opportunity. Person comes to your website, they're not going to buy. Okay, will they subscribe to your email list to get ten tips or whatever it is that you do to hook that? You don't do anything to hook that. You're stupid. You hate money. You're leaving opportunity on the table. Why would you do such a thing? Okay, and if it's not that, well, you know, do you have a Facebook uh, presence? Can they can they connect with you on Facebook? Is it easy to see how to do that? If you don't, you hate money. Why are you doing that? Now that's another positive outcome. Can they follow you on Twitter? If you do YouTube videos, can they follow your YouTube? If you do a podcast, can they subscribe your podcast? If you do a blog, do you make it easy for them to subscribe to your blog? Well, holy crap, look at all those positive outcomes. What are the odds now that any individual visitor will do at least one of them? Well, they're much higher. Now you've put them into a process. Now they're part of your sales cycle. And if you've built a good robot slave website, a lot of the selling is going to be done for you. Doesn't matter if we're selling online or offline, face to face, selling a product, a service, or an opportunity, a job, an employee. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. Next, promise only what you can deliver. Never promise jack shit you can't deliver. Because when you do, you will damage the relationship, and the relationship is what creates repeat business. Now, I've gotten into this where I've promised what I thought we could deliver, because the company said I could do it, and the company could. And then I did everything I could to mitigate that problem. So when you overpromise by no fault of your own, accept responsibility for it anyway. Do what you can to fix it. Or it hurts you. And it'll hurt you for a long time. And you never know. It's that one engineer that you sold a product to, that's going to tell a, a recruiter someday, you got to talk to this guy that's going to lead you to a quarter million dollar a year opportunity. That's how it actually works. Unless you overpromised and didn't deliver, or maybe the reason he's going to do that is because you did overpromise. He, he believes that you believed it, and then you went and did everything you could to make it right. You forced your company either to make that promise good, Or to at least try. And now that guy's like, I will always trust him. I don't trust them, but I trust him. Now you have the power. That's, what, that's why sales is such a powerful thing. It builds a relationship that outlasts employments. Next, on the same thing, close all the loops yourself. If you're tech department, if you're selling a technical product, just as a for instance, is supposed to provide training to go along with your product, you're there in person or on the phone for that first contact to make sure everybody got together at the right time in the right place in the right way, and then if you don't really need to be involved further, you step out of the way, and you know the duration that that was supposed to take for that, whether it's a one-time thing or it's like the first of ten, and when it's over, you call your customer and you say, hey... Did everything go the way that you expected it? Is there anything you feel that wasn't taken care of properly? You're their advocate now. And even when they go, you know what? It was better than I thought. That guy's fantastic. You know what they still think? Hey, Jack called me to make sure I got what I was supposed to get. Jack's cool. Do you know why it's such a differentiator? Nobody does it. Common sense. Everybody should do it. This should be in a book you get when you get a sales job. You don't get a book like that, and if it did, if you did, it would not say this. 
Very few people teach their salespeople how to do this shit. They send them off to some course somewhere in Canada or something to live in the woods for a week and get, get team development and bonding instead of teaching everything I needed. I was asked by my, my, my prior uh, partner, Bill, uh, I'm sorry, Neil Franklin, let's do an online sales course. I'm like, I can't do it. He's like, why not? I said, I can teach you almost everything you need to know about selling in one hour. And it's easier to do that for free than it is to charge somebody money for it because most people won't do it, and I don't like to charge people money for things they're not going to use. You can agree with me on that. That was an impasse, though. I won't do it. I'm giving it to you right now for free. Here it is. Next, you take, I'm sorry, you close, I'm sorry, <laughs> ask for what you want, and then shut up. This most sales jobs, they do teach you this at some point. It, most higher-end sales jobs, they assume you know this by the time you get a high-end sales job. So that's your close. Well, can we get a signature? Can we get an order? Who do I go to to get a purchase order for this? Would you like to get started today? How many would you like? Do you want a red one or a blue one? There's a million ways to ask the question. When can I come see you? Because sometimes the close is not for the, the order. The close is, I want to come out, and I want the ability to present further to you. I want a sales meeting. So when can I come see you? Shut up. Most people, they get to that closing question, Well, do you want a blue one or a red one? You know, we have lots of them, and some of them are a little bit this way, and some of them are that way. No. Do you want a blue one or a red one? If you also have green, shut up. They'll tell you, I, I, I really want a green. Oh, we have green. That's great. So here's how. So you want a green one? Yes. Okay. Let's, let's, let's do this. On websites, sign up here. Purchase here. Buy this now. It doesn't have to be giant in your face, but it shouldn't be hard to find. I've been on websites going, I want this thing. I've actually taken my wallet out of my pocket and shoved it at the screen. It frustrated with an inanimate website going, take my money. Where's the phone number? How do I buy from you? I even called one company. I told them on the phone that they hated money. They didn't find it amusing until I said, I'm trying to buy a 500 of these things. They were four bucks a piece. How do I get them? On our website. I'm on your website. I can't buy them. So whether it's online or in person, ask for you what you want and then shut up. Online is easy to shut up, but you got to ask. But offline, you've got to learn to be quiet. Let that person respond to that close. And when they do, they will tell you, I am not interested. And you'll know, I don't want to turn this into a toxic relationship. I'm going to end it at this point and do follow-up later. Or, I would like to buy this, but, great, you're still in the help, right? You've created, you've agitated, you've solved, you're still helping. I would like to buy this, but, that tells you what you need to help with. I need this, but this is too much money. I need a better price. Either you know you can, or you know you can't. If you know you can, and it makes sense, you give them a better price. If you know you can and it doesn't make sense or you know you can't, you point out why it's still worth that much money. How it's going to save, well, maybe I wasn't clear, but this product's going to save you, you know, $1,000 a year. And I don't know of another one that will. Shut up again. Let them tell you what you need to help with next. God, this is so simple. And it amazes me that most people hire people in sales and don't teach them this basic stuff. Um, next, I have 
my keys to success. These are the keys in actual real-world sales jobs that made me successful, that made me a top producer, that made me hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's only seven of them. And if you marry them with what else I told you today, you can go be a salesperson tomorrow. Now, you might have to learn an industry. You know, one of my, one of my, my best mentors of all time is a gentleman named Forrest Baker told me, if you talk to your customers, the ones you already have, like you get a sales job and you already have a customer, go talk to your customers, listen to them. They'll tell you everything you need to know. And then you just use that information to go get more customers. So if you take this information and you marry it with industry knowledge, you can be a six-figure salesman in just about any industry. I, I believe that. And I'm trying to transfer that belief to you. I'm not charging you any money for it, but I'm still trying to sell it to you, if that makes sense. So here's my seven uh, points to being a great salesperson. Number one, spend 80% of your time on the best prospects. So you identify who the best prospects are, and then you know eight out of every 10 hours is spent working on those prospects. Uh, you can do this with your job. You find the best job prospects there are and spend 80% of the time you spend working on a job and getting a job with one of those prospects. And this would include things like with a job, you should be making a resume for the job. right? Instead of sending one resume to 8,000 companies, you know, send eight resumes to eight different companies that are tailor-made for them. And you want your trick for, for a resume? When they, they put bullet points in the job posting, copy those bullet points and drop them right into the, the executive summary at the top of your resume. And then finagle enough to keep them true, ish. You know, use their own words. Right? Put you, put their words from their posting in your resume and send it back to them. Because what's the goal of your resume? To get an interview, not to get hired. All right. So, you know, don't say you have an MD if you don't and things like that. But otherwise, you just put it right back in there. Can they say you need you need six years of experience in their field and you've done something in their field every day for six years? You now have six. You see how that works, okay? Um, so, you, But you spend 80% of your time on the best prospects. Then you spend the other 25% of your, the other 20 of your time finding more prospects. You'll notice that adds to up to 100%. That's it. That's it. You find good prospects, and you find the best ones out of that group, and you spend 80% of your time approaching them, servicing them, closing them, whatever. And it doesn't matter whether, no matter what this is, it works all the way across the board. Next, take as little of a prospect's time as you can. And I, I would add to that, but I wanted to make these bullet points fit in little one-liners, you know, to get done what needs to be done. So, for instance, if I called you up and your name was Tom Jones, I'd say, hey, Mr. Jones, this is Jack Spirico. I'm calling you from a company called Garrett Com. You ever heard of Garrett Com? Well, no, I haven't. Okay, we do... Uh, hardened Ethernet equipment for the telecommunications sector. Now, as I understand it, you guys build equipment for the telecommunications sector. Is that is that true? Well, yeah, you do. We do that. Okay. Um, so you probably need some type of networking equipment that is carrier class and NEBS Level 3 certified. Is that right? Yeah. I have stuff just like that that competes well with Cisco. As far as I know, they're the only other company that has that. Would you be willing to sit down with me for about 15 minutes and discuss you know, our, our, our product offering? And whether or not it's a fit, just to see if it's a fit. It'll only take 15 minutes. I'm not even woman in the call. I'm asking for a meeting. Because I clarified that this, that, and he's either going to say, no, go blow it out your ass. Well, maybe, but I'm really not the guy. Okay, I'll talk about that in a second. 
Uh, yeah, I could, but I again, I only need about 15 minutes. Um, I'm going to be in town these three days. Do any of those work for you? Yeah, Wednesday at, at 1. Okay, great. I will see you Wednesday at 1. Is there anything I need to know when I show up as far as who to ask for, front desk protocols, anything like that? Do you have an assistant, anything like that that I need to know when I show up for my meeting with you at 1? I will be 10 minutes early, and I'll be out the door by 1.15. I want to make sure that I don't waste any of your time. And he'll say, well, yeah, you need to go to the front desk and ask for blah, 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 or what have you. Okay, great. Thank you. Now, he's going to see you because he's going to expect that you're only going to take 15 minutes of his time. Because you just spent two minutes to get, at the most, to get the appointment. You've just said, I value your time. I'm not bullshitting. I have something you might be interested in. You really probably need to take a look at this. And you can do that with anything. Or he's going to say, you know, I really don't do that. Okay, now you go into police detective mode. There has been a crime. Somebody murdered somebody. You talk to somebody who knows something about it. You determine they didn't do it. They didn't have anything to do with it. They're not guilty. They're not a suspect. But they know something. Someone's going to jail. Someone's going to jail. There was a murder. Someone's going to jail. Who do I talk to next? That's all I need from that person. Who should I talk to next? Okay? And if they say, you know, Joe Blow. When I contact Joe, do you have like a direct in number? Is there a good time, you know, if you know Joe, is there a good time to reach him? Is there something I shouldn't do with Joe? So it's the same way a police detective would work. You know, when, when can I find him? Like, does he have a problem with cops? You know, whatever. Oh, no, you know, the best time to call him usually is like right after lunch. He's pretty much got And I've had conversations go exactly this way on a cold call. After, because no one does this. Because it's so simple that it seems too easy so no one does this. You ask for exactly what you want and they freaking give it to you because you're not jerking their chain and wasting their time. When he comes, you know, he comes back from lunch, he usually is kind of relaxed, and he takes phone calls and stuff like that best around that time of day. Okay, great. Hi, Joe. This is Jack with Garricom. I was talking to Tom a little bit earlier, and he said you're the guy that handles uh, carrier class Ethernet equipment and its integration into, into uh, your projects. Is that right? Yes or no? The only two answers you can give, you see, it's easy. Yes or no? Yeah, I do. Okay, I work for a company that does carry-class carry Ethernet. Have you ever heard of Garricom? Yes, I have. No, I haven't. Yes, I have. Great. Well, let me tell you a little bit more. No. Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We Same shit I said before, so I'm not going to waste your time to say it again. You know, We make carry-class Ethernet. We compete with Cisco. We have a variety of options, 48 volts, whatever the buzzwords are for him. And what I'd like to do is I'm going to be in town next week. Would it possible, be possible for me to get in, in, in to see you for about 15 minutes to go over a little bit of what we have and learn a little bit about what you guys do? Yes or no? See how simple that is? It would. That would be great. Same questions. You know, is there anything I need to do at the front desk, whatever? You know, when I ask for you, is there a certain building I need to come to? Do you have a personal assistant? Things like that. So that I, I do things right because I want to be able to get in and get out and keep my commitment to you and only take 15 minutes. Now, I'm not going to say it's only going to be 15 minutes. I am going to be watching my watch or my phone. And at like 14 minutes, I'm going to say, well, you know, I promise to only take 15 minutes of your time up. I always keep my word with people. We're kind of at that last minute. I don't need to go. But if you need to get back to work, let me know and let me know how we can follow up with this. You know what you just said? I keep my effing word 
always, especially when that meeting's going great. And usually he's going to say, you know what, I got another 15 minutes if you do. Okay, great. I just wanted to make sure that I kept my commitment to you. Or he might say, you know, because you said 15 minutes, I, I have another meeting at five and I got to get ready for it or whatever. But that guy is always going to take your call when you call him back. Now, he may not buy from you because it may not be a good fit or whatever, but he is always going to be willing to work with you because you didn't bullshit him. And that's the problem. Most people are out bullshitting people in sales because they think that's how you get sales. You get sales by saying exactly what you do, exactly how you can help somebody, finding out exactly what they need, telling them exactly what you want from them, finding out exactly what they need from you, and doing exactly what the hell you say you're going to do. Now, I don't understand why this is complicated. But this is how you handle everything in life. If you were in collections, you're in sales. That's not sales, that's collections. I'm trying to get a bill. No, you're trying to get that person to believe they need to pay you now. You use the same formula. Inside sales, you use the same formula. Outside sales, you use the same formula. Never bullshit. When you talk to your prospect, and I kind of explained this in my little scenario there, you tell your prospect why you chose them. You're looking for a job. I chose you because I'm pursuing a career in, and I looked into it, and there's several projects that your company is working on that I'm very excited about, and I would like to tell you how I think I can help you with those. You just separated yourself from 98% of the riffraff that they're going to interview. Right there, your top 2% are in their mind. You can blow it from there, but you're already there. I'm contacting you because I sell carrier class Ethernet equipment, and I noticed that Santerra Systems is doing a large-scale rollout of multiple central office co-locations across the country. Well, yeah, how'd you know that? I talk to people and I find things out. Anyway, I understand that you're dealing with Cisco. How'd you know that? Because you're not dealing with me, and in, in that particular scenario, I'm out of the script now, right? In that particular scenario, that's the only other person they could be dealing with. And I would say because they are the only other people that make the equipment that's qualified to be in these types of installations. I have another option. Generally, I find that people like knowing what all their options are. Since in this case, we only have two, wouldn't you like to take a look at what we have? I can just look at it on your website. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I'll send you an email once we get off the phone. I'll get your email. But, you know, I, I am going to be in town. I could stop in for 15 minutes. Sometimes I see things where we can help. And, you know, people don't really know what to look for. And, you know, for instance, recently on a project with Alcatel, I saved them about $3 million. And if I hadn't been there to see and, and learn a little bit about what they were doing, I wouldn't have been able to do that. And I don't think they, I can tell you flat out. In fact, I'll give you an engineering call and ask them about this if you want to, but I don't think that that it would have ever been found. And that's three million bucks back in your budget. So, you know, it's usually worth a 15 minute interview or a 15 minute meeting so we can talk about this and see if there's anything else that we can work out in the future. And I can learn a little bit more about how I can help you. Oh, okay. I had a guy, that's exactly how he answered that, that exact pushback. It was Santerra Systems, and it was Alcatel, and a week earlier I had saved them $3 million on a design decision. And, and, yeah, come on in. Never asked to talk to the guy. Big Guy Ray over at Alcatel would have talked to him and talked to Zeroff. They didn't see each other as direct competitors. Santerra was a solutions provider. Alcatel was an equipment provider. For all they knew, putting them together would get them doing business with each other. But when you, start, when you can say, hey, this is what I've done over here, 
And I do that by coming in and taking a look and at least understanding a little bit better about what you do. I'll only take 15 minutes or 30. Whatever it is you need, but ask for as little as possible. But tell them why you called them and be direct about why you're contacting them. I chose you because I want to talk to you about and make it clear that you don't need them. You know, I've only got 15 minutes. I'm going to be in town for three days. I'm trying to see as many people as I can. I got a lot of business in your town, and I just thought I could fit this in. I've got a couple uh, different times on these days. Which one's probably best for you? I think it'd be, the best is are wide open. Tuesday, yeah, I've got some time on Tuesday. Uh, when can you work with that? 2:15. Yeah, I could move that. I, it would be easier for me if we did two o'clock. Can we do two o'clock? Even if I have 2:15 open. Well, yeah, I can do two o'clock. Okay, great. Because that, that's signifying, I'm not begging you for this. I'm not begging you for this. I, I work with people in your market all the time. I, some, I'm going to go see somebody during that time frame. I have this, you know, I have these time frames I'm filling up right now, and uh, you know, I'm going to go talk to somebody. And you're very matter-of-fact and very business-like. And a person will agree to you before they even realize what they did. And then that's where you got to follow up and close that loop with that email. Uh, and you, the email is the repeat of the call. We spoke about, you can learn more about my company here. I will be at your front desk 10 minutes early. I'll let them know to contact you that we have a 1 p.m. meeting. I'm going to cover boom, boom, and boom with you. If there's anything about that that you think, you know, you might prompt some questions, have them prepared or, you know, have them ready. Or send them to me in advance, and I'll, I'll have answers for you when I get there. I should be out the door by 1.15. I really appreciate the opportunity to get together and discuss, fill in the blank, whatever the hell you're discussing a second time, all your contact information. Send them you know, an Outlook contact uh, meeting request in that, that deal. Or ask them to send you one if it you know, reserves their meeting space or whatever, depending on what kind of operation you're talking about. This is simple. Dude, I mean, this is like dead simple, but it's deadly effective. So you make it clear nicely that you don't need them, and then you know your sales cycle and stick to it. And what I mean by that is some sales are things that you should be going in and getting the order in a day. If you don't get the order on that day, the person may come back to you, but you're not getting the order next week either. It's that kind of a product. It's a product that people just buy. Okay? There are products that require a long sales cycle. The process here is my first step is to get a meeting and an assessment of the client's needs, then to propose a solution. The solution is then going to go through some sort of technical analysis. I may need to get a piece of equipment to them that they can try out, demo, etc. Well, this is a great opportunity. This is what I used to do. We'd like to get a couple of your switches in our lab so we can go through them. Can we get demo switches? Well, I don't just give out switches. Um, but I can do that for you. The way I can do that for you is we'll do what we call a demo PO. And a demo PO works like this. We give you a hundred, uh, we give you 90 days to pay. And you get the equipment for 90 days. And we put right on the, on the invoice that you can either pay within 90 days or return the equipment within 90 days. Would that work? Well, yeah, that, that, okay, yeah. Because, you know, this is a company that's going to buy a thousand of them. Two of them is no big deal. Why does this work? Okay, now you get everything set up for purchasing. Because they said they're going to, well, we have to get, uh, requisition this through purchasing or whatever. Oh, okay. So then 
we're not a vendor. Do I get set up as a vendor? Or would you like to go through one of my resellers? Obviously, you're going to pay more if you go through a reseller, but you know, sometimes some companies are like, we want as few vendors as possible. So who are your preferred, re- uh, uh, your, your preferred uh, vendors you buy from? You know, Annexter. I sell through Annexter. Well, let me get you in touch, and I'll explain to my guy over at Annexter for your area uh, that this is a, you know, a, a demo purchase order, that it may be coming back. He understands that. If he do, he's going to because I'm going to explain to him when I call him and tell him I'm walking him in to an opportunity to get it to sell a thousand switches next quarter. But either way, I now get to deal with the purchasing person over something that's so simple and so easy. We're not going to argue about it. Most of the time, if you're in a situation where you can sell directly, they're going to tell you, yeah, we want to buy directly from you. So then you go to purchasing and they'll say, we need you to set up Jack and his company as a vendor. And they'll say, these are the things we need to set you up as a vendor. Well, now I know what I need. Now, I'm not, I'm not doing this when I'm trying to get a PO out of them for $100,000. It's very laid back. Now I've got my company set up as a vendor. Now I can find, if it's a big company, I can find anybody else in that company with a requirement, and I already have them in the system. So now I can say, we're already set up in your system. See? But that's knowing your cycle and sticking to your cycle because when you're 90 days in with a customer who should have closed in 45 days or less, they're jerking you around. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to do business with them. It means they're no longer in your 80% that you spend 80% of your time on. They're now in your 20%. They're just kind of sitting there on the back burner. That's when, okay, I've hit every major thing that I have that I can do today. Now I'm going to go to my back bench. And I haven't contacted these guys in a while. You set up automatic reminders or whatever, and hey, you know, it's been about a month since we talked. How's that, how's that going over there? Is there anything I can do for you guys? You know, that type of thing. But you don't put a lot of effort into it because it's breaking your cycle. Now, it could be for a very good reason. If you know that they're waiting on approval for their project from their higher-ups, then you, you, you give a lot more tender, loving care to that. And again, this could be a job. This could be a, a promotion. It doesn't matter what it is. This could be the opportunity to get into a training program at your place of work. This could be the opportunity to get them to pay for you to go get a certification. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. So, spend 80% of your time on the best prospects. Spend 20% of your time finding more prospects. Take as little of the prospect's time as you can. Tell your prospect why you chose them. Be direct about why you are contacting them. Make it clear nicely that you don't need them. And know your cycle and stick to it. Now that's it. I'm telling you what I've just given you today. Married to the one keystone of the whole thing. And it's all back to transfer of belief. You have everything you know that if you wanted a career in sales you could go build one now. Now, you might, again, you might have to acquire industry knowledge and things like that, some networking skill sets and what have you. But in the end, this is it. This is the core. This is why I couldn't build a course. Because this is, there's no more than this. If I keep making more at this point, I'm trumping up bullshit and I'm making fluff and filler. And I don't do fluff and filler. It's counter to everything that I'm talking about today. But I got to tell you, the keystone is transfer of belief. If you don't believe in something... If you are an ethical and moral person, and most people are, you cannot sell it. If you don't believe in something and you don't believe it actually is in the best interest of the party you're talking to for them to purchase it, you cannot sell it. 
That's why it's very hard to get a date if you don't believe in yourself as, as being worthy of having a good romantic partner. It's very hard for you to find a job if you don't believe in yourself as being a great asset to the company you're applying to. You have to believe. So you have to find either what you believe in and sell that or find belief for what it is that you need to sell. And I'll tell you, if you're in a sales position or any kind of outward customer-focused solution where you're trying to get people to come in and do business with you in any way, shape, or form, and you don't believe in the company that you're working for, don't quit tomorrow because you've got to pay the bills, but you need to be out using the sales process to find a new job. Because I've seen it. And when people lose faith in the company they're working for, I've seen top salespeople become poor performers literally overnight because they can't sell it anymore. And I'll tell you, it's happened to me. When I've had companies drop the ball on customers enough time and break promises enough times, I'm done. i got to go somewhere else. You don't do what you say you're going to do, so I can't sell for you. Because they sell by telling the customer what we can do for them, and now you're failing them. So I would, what I've done is I've fought the battle for every one of my customers, got it as right as I could, and said, I'm moving on. I understand there's been programs. I hope you, problems, I hope you understand I did everything I could for you in this. And I wanted to close all these loops before I left. And I hope that I can contact you wherever I land, and uh, we can still be friends and possibly work together. And every single time the response to that is, you bet. You bet. Whatever we can do to help you. I've even had, would you, would you like me to introduce you to some people? Or, you know, do, you know what, that might be great. But uh, right now I actually have an opportunity I'm heading into. I just prefer not to talk about it until I've actually made the transition. I'll be in touch soon. And when I get in touch, I'll say, I still want to know, like, who are you thinking? Because that might be like, well, no, I, I really don't want to work for them, but maybe they have something going on that I can help them with. It, it, it's this simple. But it, you gotta have, you gotta have belief in yourself if you're selling yourself, in your company if you're selling a company, in the service you have if you're selling a service, and the product if you're selling a product. I've had people that they have a small business of their own, they're gonna start being a permaculture consultant or whatever. You start talking, you realize they have no confidence in themselves. Okay, so you can fix that. You probably have a reason. You don't have enough experience or education. So go build up the experience of education so the confidence is there. When you have the confidence, you'll sell. You look at all the people that sell, like, you know, how to pick up girls in bars. It's the same thing. Complete, undenying confidence in yourself. It's attractive. People like confident people. People like people that will take charge of a situation, that have a solution. When I went to work for Sage Telecom, the reason I got the job, they interviewed 70, 78 people, I think, is what the guy told me. I walked in the door. Here's, here's exactly how I would run this for you guys. This is what I would do. I'd start doing this on day one. Here's everything mapped out. You know? Well, what about this? We can look at that, but this is what I would do first. I'm going to implement this type of targeted SEO campaign, this type of targeted pay advertising, this type. Here's the states that we're going to go into first because you have the best competitive advantage there. That's where we're going to put our, our, our paid advertising first. I imagine you have a marketing analyst. I'm sure you can make all of this better, but this is where I want to start. Okay, come work for us. Yeah, you know, and what I did there, yeah, I don't want to. I, I really want to, but I don't want to. They, they three people looking at each other like they're in pain. You guys are, what I said is you guys are geographically undesirable. You're asking me to drive almost 70 miles one way to get here. Now, 
your CMO that referred me to you. <laughs> Come on, you're, you, you, you're kind of putting it all out there, right? Like, the person that you work for told you to interview me, said that it might be possible that I could work from home a couple days a week. Now, if we can talk about that, I can justify the drive the other two, maybe three days a week. So I didn't ask for two or three days at home. I said, this is how many I'm willing to give you here. We came to an agreement. I started working from home a couple days a week. I got everything I wanted. But it was because I had confidence that I could deliver. You got to have the belief, guys. You do that, you merit with everything else I told you today, you can't fail. And this is, as I said at the beginning of the show, this is the number one skill that is the most valuable skill that most people are never taught. We should do classes on this in high school at the, at the latest. This is really like more like we should be doing basic sales training for people in middle school. This is how to go out and market yourself. But it's, in a way, it's good we don't. And I'll tell you why. Because when you learn this, you're in like the top 5% as far as knowledge about sales right now. I know that might sound a little arrogant, from my end to tell you that like the stuff I just gave you, if you actually remember it and make it part of what you do, that you're in the top 5%. I didn't say of skill. I said knowledge. You now know more than 95% of the people in the world. And I would say you probably know more than at least 60% of sales professionals that are successful. At least. Because this is the formula that every top producer I've ever met uses. It's always the same thing. Sometimes they don't even know it. They haven't formulated it. They just happen to be, they were taught a system that is this, and they don't know it by these names and terminologies, etc. Or they're so innately perfect as a, as a personality type for this that it's what they just naturally do. But every top performer, I'm talking to people when you say, like, you know, how many salespeople does your company have? And they go, 100. And you go, well, how's your territory, your whatever? And they go, like, oh, I'm number five. I'm number two, I'm number one, I'm number three. Whenever you got the guys that are in the top 10%, this is always what they do. So if it's what everybody that's in that top 10% does, it's what you should do. And again, I don't want to be a sales professional. That's fine. This is how you get a job. This is how you get a date. This is how you get into a university. This is how you get selected for a training program. This is how you get promoted. It's all the same. And I've said that enough that I'll stop and we'll wrap up there. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you did, one of the ways you can help support us is uh, by doing your online shopping that you're probably going to do anyway through tspaz.com. You're going to shop online. Just go to T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And when you do that, you'll see all of the stuff that I've reviewed on Amazon. You can check any of it out. Remember, I believe sales is transfer of belief. I only sell what I believe. Everything on there, I own it, I touch it, I bought it, I spent my money on it. If I didn't, I wouldn't recommend it to you. So, product of the day today is Davidson's Organic Peppermint Tea Leaves. And uh, the stuff is uh, it's a great deal as far as I'm concerned at about 13 bucks a pound. And you guys have seen videos of my place. You know there's like peppermint everywhere. What the hell? I have a look at it. What the hell are you buying peppermint for? Well, a pound of peppermint takes about 10 to 15 pounds of, um, you know, to get 10 to 15 pounds of live peppermint to get about one pound of dry because it shrinks up so much. And then you got to sift it and deal with it. So if that took me two hours, I'm, you know, valuing my time at seven bucks. And I think it would take more than two hours. I, I really do. 
Plus, I would have cut that much peppermint back, and I kind of like it. I use it fresh all the time, but for mixing teas, it, for me, it comes down to the, the sheer volume that I use, how easy it is to use, and the volume of my time. But the reason I like this stuff is I do a lot of my tea blends with this peppermint product. But my morning blend that I've talked about before, this is my favorite tea. I have a, a care of it sitting right here. I've been drinking it during this episode. It's three parts peppermint, three parts chamomile, one part lemongrass, one part lemon balm, and one part green tea. If you don't want green tea because you don't want caffeine, you could do one part blackberry leaf to balance it out instead. That recipe is in the, the uh, write-up for it today. Again, you can find it at tspaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com. Scroll down and you'll see that most recent review really easily there. And again, real quick before we sign off today, uh, I do have MSB on sale. MSB is on sale for $35 a year, $0.12 cents an episode. If you don't think today's episode was worth $0.12, cents, you didn't listen right. Go do it again. I mean, the, honest to God, if you apply the stuff that I, that I put in today's episode, folks, you should be able to add you know, tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to your life over your lifetime. Because it is, it is that one promotion that, that changes your tax bracket. It's that one training program you get into that changes the trajectory of your career. And it's... It, it's It's sort of a version of what we used to say in the Army, the squeaky wheel getting the grease. But when we do sales, it's like being the strategically accurate squeaky wheel that gets the attention to the exact spot that it needs to be exactly when the attention needs to be there. Anyway, it kind of fits with our song of the day. Our song of the day is by a band called Eddie and the Hot Rods. These guys did okay. They never were really huge. This was actually their most successful song. It's called Do Anything You Want. And it even evokes some stuff out of, like, uh, uh, Aleister Crowley. Yes, the devil guy, yeah. Um, I think they were more playing around with it, though, and mocking it. And they actually used a, uh, a photograph for their album that I think got them sued by <laughs> Crowley's people or something like that. Uh, but... What I what I really like about this song is if you just listen to the words, it'll it'll make perfect sense. Here's the uh, words in more poetry format. Gonna break out of this city, <clears throat> leave the people here behind, searching for adventure. It's the type of life to find. Tired of doing day jobs with no thanks for what I do. I'm sure I must be someone. Now I'm gonna find out who. Do anything you want to do. Do anything you want to do. Don't need no politician. Tell me things I shouldn't know. Neither no optician. Neither no optician telling me what I ought to see. No one tells you nothing, even when they know you. When when you know they know, but when they tell you what you should do, they don't like to see you grow. Why don't they? Why don't you ask them what they expect from you? Why don't you tell them? What you are gonna do. You'll get so lonely, maybe it's better that way. It ain't you only. You got something to say. Do anything you want to do. Gonna break out of this city. And, and really the, the spirit of that song is whatever it is you want, go do it. And that's something that many people are afraid of because they think it'll lead to hard, terrible, bad, mean, sorrowful, selfish things. And the reality is, if, if you are a moral person, the things you truly want to do in totality will never be harmful, hurtful things, 
But it's amazing how people will use that as an excuse to prevent themselves from going and doing the things that they really dream about, that they really believe in, that they really want to achieve. I just did a whole show today to tell you how to get those things done. So, in the words of Eddie and the Hot Rods, do anything you want to do. Go get it. With that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. you ask